You're listening to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I am glad you're with me. And you know what? Today's program is a great one, although I kind of admit you expect me, what else would I say? But it's true. I've got one of the biggest names in Canadian business and philanthropy, CEO Fiori Capital, Frank Juster. He's going to talk to us about the explosion of paper money, about gold's role and how we can protect ourselves, all of that and a lot more, but really thrilled to get Frank on with me. We're also going to talk about FTX, the incredible losses, the fraud, uh, just so much to do with that with the host of uh, Canadian Bitcoiners, Joey Temprilli. I mean, th this is great. There's so much that we've got to look into that. Plus, one overlooked fact from the latest inflation numbers with Michael Levy. I'll be talking with him. I've got Ozzy with me. I've got Victor Adair. I've got a great quote of the week. Why is it so tough for our so-called experts or political class to admit a mistake? Great insight on that. I've also got, uh, I thought it was a shocking stat when you talk about we need, we know, the governments have now acknowledged, we know we need more rare earth minerals. We know we need more copper and things like lithium if we're going to have the renewable transition and the electric vehicle transition. Well, it's incredible the groups who have lined up to oppose that. I'll tell you more. But first, what else needs to be said about our healthcare system besides the fact that 11,581 patients died in 2020-21 waiting for surgeries? Since April 218, a total of 26,875 patients have died while waiting for surgery and diagnostic scans. Okay, maybe I could also add in that the Commonwealth Fund ranks Canada dead last among 11 developed countries when it comes to receiving care within four hours in an emergency department. We're also dead last in seeing a specialist within four weeks of referral. Oh, also dead last when it comes to non-emergency surgery after it's recommended. But I suspect, hey, maybe you know about that, or there's a good chance that you know somebody who was, family member or friend, because they've experienced it firsthand. Well, personally, I certainly have myself. Just last week, the Fraser Institute released a study comparing Canada with 30 other countries, concluded that we rank 28th for the number of doctors per capita. But then again, anyone looking for a family doctor knows that. How about we're 26th out of 29 for the number of MRI machines per capita, 27th for CT scanners. Look, I can go on. But then I think about it. That's why some people think I'm a pain in the ass. Okay pain in the ass may be putting it kindly, but especially those that harbor under the illusion that Canada has the top healthcare system in the world. Those kind of facts are not welcome, but they're necessary to know. What's incredible is like so many other areas controlled by government, none of this is a surprise. Come on, the whole premise of the Canadian medical system is that we have unlimited access with limited funding. Well, that's unworkable nonsense. In fact, it's turned out to be deadly nonsense. I started focusing on the finances of healthcare well over two decades ago because for me, it was obvious that this would become a financial issue as well as a healthcare issue because that foundation was unworkable. And now we're living the results. My impression is that a lot of people don't understand that things like waiting lists or the shortage of doctors, well, that's government policy. Rationing access to care is the only way they can control costs. You know, we have a system that there is literally no incentive to see patients because patients come as a cost, no financial benefit. For decades, it's been government policy to limit the number of spaces available at medical schools. Why? Because that limits the number of doctors, and that means fewer visits and less billing. 
And now we act surprised, especially in light of the aging population, that we've got you know, shortages of doctors, nurses, lab technicians, well, virtually everywhere else in the public healthcare system. I mean, the shortage of family doctors is a huge problem in many areas. I mean, I'm in Victoria. Well, I can drive anything and see lots of signs on the lawns, like a campaign style, say, we deserve a family doctor. Well, good luck with that. These problems have built up over the last 30 years and are not going to be solved quickly, especially given that the provincial and federal government show no sign they're capable of initiating the significant changes necessary. Like so many other things the government does, nothing's going to happen until the system actually breaks. But for 11,581 patients who died waiting for treatment, or the estimated millions of people waiting medically unaccepted time for treatment, or the workers, the nurses, etc., who have been burnt out by the system, well, it already has broken. Access to waiting lists is not access to medical treatment. Now, look, I get, you may not agree with me. Maybe you need to experience it firsthand. But the Supreme Court of Canada, by the way, and the BC Court of Appeals, both, both acknowledge that we are suffering while waiting for treatment. But governments subscribe to an ideology that says the system is more important than your health. Incapable and incompetent, driven by ideology, one that is subscribed to by only one country in the world, North Korea, well, that's consistently proven to be a dangerous, make that deadly combination. As Winston Churchill once said, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. Well, when it comes to our healthcare system, the results are in big red neon letters. People are dying. People are suffering. Canada ranks last among other Western nations when it comes to access to medical care. We've been getting reports of the lack of sustainability of healthcare for 20 years plus. And it's clear that healthcare unions, professional medical associations, and most of all, our politicians have not proven up to the task of making the necessary changes. But at the risk of angering a great many people, I say the public hasn't either. We have not demanded better. We've not collectively said people are dying waiting for treatment is not good enough or languishing on a waiting list is unacceptable. We collectively haven't shown the courage to make the necessary changes. And here's an easy prediction. Things are only going to get worse till we do. Um, come on, throwing an extra billion here or 10 billion there or whatever has already been tried and it has not worked. Little has changed. The ball is in our court, court as voters to say, we need something better. This is unacceptable. Hey, by the way, I just remind you that we have the World Outlook Conference coming up on February 3rd and 4th, back live in person at the Western Bayshore in Vancouver. But what a raft of phenomenal speakers and analysts we have for you. Uh, I mean, everything. Uh, the track record has been brilliant over the years, but it's never been more important to get good financial advice. Of course, that's what I hope we do on Money Talks. The record will speak for itself, and I like our record. But I just encourage you, go on mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the events button. You can get more information there. But hey, back live in person. I'm excited about it, excited to get a chance to see you. Stay with us. So much more planned for you. You know, any poll result you see comes back with my cost of living's killing me. 
And, and, and it's an increasing number. One of the things we've said on Money Talks from the get-go is, yeah, we knew it was going to impact people at the lower income. But as things continued with rising interest rates, with the rising cost of living, it's starting to move up the, you know, the, the, the field. So we're getting people who are definitely middle class saying, this is tough. I think I suspect mortgage rates are paying a large part. But I want to bring in Mike Levy right now. Mike, of course, we got the September numbers uh, and October numbers. No real change in either one of them at 6.9%. And people say, oh, thank goodness for that, a 6.9%. Boy, boy, maybe prices will start to come down. No, prices aren't going to start to come down. What you've got is the rate of change coming down. Doesn't mean inflation go from 6.9%, Mike, to 3.9%. All it's doing is putting that much more on whatever you were spending and whatever it cost the day before. So I, I think let's get that straight. Well, I think that's a great point, though, Mike, that um, people get a little confused with that, and that's fine. But, you know, we're t- as you just said, measuring the rate of change. But that, let's say all of a sudden I used to pay five bucks, now I'm playing 10, but it only goes up, a, a, you know, a little bit after that. No, I'm still paying the 10. That's not the cost of living part of it. It's the rise in the cost of living. So I'm, I'm glad you made that point. Uh, you know, the other one they make all the time, Mike, uh, and I understand why they're doing it. Analysts will come back and say, and, and StatsCan does. Well, what about core inflation, which was 5.3, I think. But the bottom line is they say, if you remove food and energy, then it's X. And I'm going, what? Yeah, good. Ah, Then I won't eat and I won't drive my car. But it still is not impacting what you're paying in the grocery store. And sure it is. The rate of change, again, is going up less. But it's just, it's it's, it's not even cold comfort for Canadians, Mike. Yeah, people who are worried about what it's actually costing me to live can't remove food, can't remove energy. So I always kind of smile at that side. I know that's not what they're, they're not trying to trick us or anything and they're, they're doing it for government policies. But yeah, that, that's the other thing. Let me, let me ask you this, Mike. Uh, what do you think this means for interest rates? Because that's always the big thing. Why do we talk inflation? Well, we have a world awash with debt, including individual record debt, government record debt. And so if inflation's high, they're trying to discourage demand by raising rates. So what's your takeaway? I mean, is there anything definitive yet when we look at what the implications for their raising interest rate environment that we've been operating in? Well, well, one of them, Mike, and it's a bit of a sideways here, is uh, people are looking at high inflation and the, and the rising interest rates and the, the way it's uh, impacting the stock market, the way it's impacting uh, just the, 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 uh, of, of what they have to spend in a month. And it's also going to make their retirement more difficult. And there was just a recent study on that. And more than 60% of people who haven't yet retired say they're delaying their start date because everything has gotten so expensive. Inflation is their primary worry. Uh, About two-thirds fearing it will erode their savings and their way of life. And yes, Mike, it absolutely will. Uh, Another 55% fear they don't even have enough saved to begin with. And close to half or 45% are pressing pause on retirement because they're worried about their investments. And just one final uh, sort of comment from me. You know, Mike, it used to be $100,000, either in income or the availability of 100000 or 100000 for your retirement used to be a lot of money. And it's not a lot of money. $100,000 is being bantying around like 10 years ago, like forty or fifty or $60,000 was being bantying around. So there's no magic to $100,000 anymore. 
Yeah, the other thing that concerns me that uh, they do report on, by the way, but it's a cross-country thing, and that's shelter. You know, that rents went up an average of 4.5 or 5%. But you know what? We had a rental housing shortage in the major urban centers. We have uh, 1.5 million newcomers coming in over the next three years. There's not, you know, higher interest rates don't encourage more development of rent, rental. So I worry that side of the component also in major urban centers, you know, that's where it's very different. If you're in a small town or something, you're in Toronto, you're in Montreal, you're in Vancouver. I just don't see how, rent, I mean, I think people, prospective renters would go, I'll take 4% every day because it ain't there. We've had a much dr- dr- higher thing. So again, I come back, food, shelter, and uh a gasoline. Oh, that still doesn't look that optimistic, despite the fact that the sort of the rolling three, four months have improved when it comes to the rate of growth of inflation. So, so that brings something to mind to me, Mike, because yes, the Bank of Canada is going to raise interest rates, and maybe only by a quarter of 1% in December, possibly a half. But it, it, that's not going, everything we've been talking about, that's not going to positively impact that for Canadians. It's not, you know, full circle to what we've been talking about. So they only go a quarter of 1%. It's going up a quarter and it's going to go up another quarter. All they're doing is saying we're not going to make each one as painful. But what they're also saying is we're going to stretch it out. And uh, that's not working for Canadians now. That's going to mean it's going to impact unemployment, but it's going to impact it in sort of a different way, Mike. A lot of people aren't going to be leaving their jobs because they have to work in order to live and can't retire, and those jobs are not going to be thrown open. So I, I think a combination of that, a combination of the slowdown, is going to see our unemployment numbers. Uh, they're, they're not going to be impacted the way we want them to be impacted. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about. Of course, that's why we do it every week, by the way. There's so much to talk about, Mike. But I know you're going to look forward to this segment. I got, uh, you know, we're going to be talking, you know, the whole crypto space, FTX, yeah. with the Canadian Bitcoiner himself. Joey's going to be with me. And I, I know right from the get-go, you've been nervous about that sphere. You've been saying, you know, no, I am not comfortable. You must be sitting back going, whoa, thank God I wasn't part of that. I wasn't part of that. And Mike, I'm on record on Money Talks to our listeners. It has been questionable to me from day one. I did not purchase or I was not involved in that market at all. And when they came out and said, well, Bitcoin is the new gold, I just shook my head and Bitcoin this and uh, a digital currencies that. But the uh, new CEO in charge of FTX, uh, which is the company with all the problems in charge of that restructuring, calls the case an unprecedented mess. This is the guy who restructured Enron and he's never seen anything like that. So one final comment. Yes, I am looking forward to hearing Joey. But the other thing is, where are the regulators? They're all here now. They're all at the gate. Yeah, we're going to investigate this. We're going to go after them. Where the heck were they from the start? And is this industry industry going to be regulated? By, because it damn well has to be. I promise we'll go right into that stuff. But in the meantime, Mike, have a terrific week. You too, Mike. Thank you.
Well, of course, the biggest story, uh, arguably, in finance, although there's tons of competition these days, but certainly in the world of crypto, in the world of uh, you know, DeFi, that kind of stuff has been FTX. And it had so many elements. Uh, we talked about this last week in our shocking stat, but anytime you get celebrities involved like Steph Curry or you get Tom Brady, of course, has been taking a lot of heat on this. And so many others, though. Shaquille O'Neal is also part of that group. The list was a, a real long one. Uh, and of course, then, of course, you've got uh, allegations of fraud now, the amount of money involved. We've just got to talk about it. And I wanted to go to one of the hosts of Canadian Bitcoiners. It's a podcast, very good podcast that deals with a lot of these issues, you know, obviously in that space. Joey Temprilli is with me right now. Joey, thanks for taking the time with us. Mike, it's my pleasure. Honored to be here with you and your listeners today. You must have been blown away like the rest of us when the news first broke because we're talking about just a major player in, in the, I know it's, it's broad based, but that space, let's just call it for right now. It's a, it's a huge story. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people in the space have been Monday morning quarterbacking the incident, the contagion. We saw this coming. We should have done more. We should have done X, Y, Z. I think one thing is safe to say for sure, Mike, this is not the first time this has happened. It will not be the last in all likelihood. And the question is, as an investor, as a Bitcoiner, um, how do you protect yourself? What, what do we do? That's the question we all have to answer now. What about uh, the distinction? I mean, one of the things, um, you know, we've chatted before, and it's sort of a, a, a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And part of that's out of ignorance, the, the, you know, sort of a broad, I know it's a broad statement, but the public doesn't make a big distinction between different types of cryptocurrencies, as an example, or different aspects of it. And I, you know, I mean, the concern is that people say, oh, it's another fraud. It's another, you know, and, and sort of the whole space gets tarred with this. And yeah, maybe we should certainly be more cautious, but I, I'm for, in favor of that for any time you push your money out and do an investment side of things. What, what's your take on that? Is this going to take a long time to recover from? Uh, is it recoverable? Some are saying, well, it's never coming back, you know, that kind of thing. This is a really good question. And it's one, you know, we've thought about, I'm sure you've thought about some of your listeners as well. The, the question is, what exactly are we recovering from? We're recovering, in my view, from two things. One is this sort of obvious fraudulent operation that is a crypto exchange with its own native token. Um, there, there's a number of different ways to view these tokens, but generally speaking, as as a impartial third party, with without this you know, hope that you're going to get rich on the exchange or off the native token, you would view this as a sort of... Uh, perverse way to raise capital and to inflate your balance sheet, for example. You spin up a token, you you garner support for the token via a, new, a number of ways. You mentioned a few celebrity endorsements, for example, when it comes to FTT and FTX, and then you use that to garner VC interest, et cetera, et cetera, and on the flywheel spins. The other thing, you know, I should say before we move on, the, the, the recovery there is going to be difficult because this is the nature of the beast in many exchanges. The largest exchange in the world, Binance, which is also come to some notoriety for the average investor due to their role in the attempted bailout, for example. They use a similar token on their platform. Um, so this is not a new thing, and it, I don't think it's going away anytime soon, certainly not offshore. The, the bigger question for me is, how do we recover confidence in the ecosystem? I, I'm a Bitcoin guy, Mike, and so I don't invest in crypto. Like you mentioned, the, the idea that Bitcoin is the same as all these other things, I think, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I don't hold that against the average investor for not knowing the difference. They're bombarded constantly by the wrong messaging, messaging that's related to, for example, advertising dollars in FTX's case. You can, you can draw these lines fairly simply. They're, they're not difficult to, to, the relationships are not difficult to, to un, uncover. I, I think that people need to realize 
the difference between these crypto tokens and Bitcoin, for example, is that Bitcoin has a link to the physical world in terms of its energy output, energy consumption, hardware needs, um, power procurement needs. There, there's a lot of things that go into the digital asset from the physical world. This is the synergy that really matters. With these other tokens, Mike, whether it's FTT or the Binance token or any number of other altcoins, including Ethereum now, which was the sort of quote unquote direct competitor to Bitcoin up until about uh, you know a month or two ago, these other tokens have no linkage to the physical world. There's nothing required to spin up more of that token. This is a problem because as, as you know, and as your listeners know, scarcity is an important part of value. And where there is no scarcity, value is very hard to come by. And so you wind up with these insane bubbles. Um, and you know, as violent as the upswing was, the, the, there is a match for that violence on the downside. And you're seeing that now with the contagion. So recovering that faith is going to be important. It's, it's a lot to, there's a lot to do with messaging that Bitcoiners have to take advantage of. You know, this is an opportunity for us, I think, to, to get the, the truth out there about the difference between the two assets and see if we can't um, bring some new people into the space. That's a great explanation, by the way, but it's a, such an important one, too, that uh, you shouldn't be just sort of broadband thinking about this. And, and Bitcoin is different uh, than, you know, what happened at FTX. They just make up their own token and people accept it. I mean, just like I'll accept a baseball card as collateral for something or, you know, a piece of art. I mean, we, it's whatever we accept as value, but there's really no underlying value. And I think that's a key component, Joey, you're pointing out there. Uh, uh, at the other side, uh, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of talk about uh, new regulations, uh, you know, governing that sort of side of the space. What's your sort of take on that? Because my worry has always been the government's going to, again, have mistargeted any kind of regulations. I mean, clearly they need regulations, but it's not going to be targeted right on, you know, again, sorry for the cliche, baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. It's the right way to look at it. You know, Mike, uh, I don't have to ask you what you think about this question, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. Can you think of a time where the solution to a problem was more government regulation or no? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, really, it's, it's not that hard, right? The, 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 problems, the problems with regulation are inherent because governments, governments by nature, I think, are more conservative even than you and me uh, sometimes appreciate. They're slow moving. They're reactionary. This is a good thing 80% of the time, let's say. Mm -hmm. But as we're seeing now, the, these ecosystems are moving at the speed of technology, and they're very, they're, by their very nature, they're extremely difficult to even understand, let alone try and regulate. By the way, Mike, there's you know a number of government organizations that are regulating other other industries exclusively, the SEC and other three letter agencies in the United States, for example, and their kin here in Canada. Asking one of these uh, industries to remove resources from you know mature monolithic capital markets and assign them to what jpeg frogs and ftt tokens and this sort of thing this is very difficult um a very difficult decision to make with capital allocation and human resource allocation that's number one um so i don't know if they'll do it effectively even if they try but the the more important thing to me is can governments around the world get this right and protect investors as they are you know, I think as they are keen to do most of the time, the problem is that with this investor protection veil, oftentimes there's overreach and protection turns into uh, rules for thee and not for me, right? I think about the accredited investor rules, for example. You know, there's some protection there, of course, for the average Joe, but there's a lot of people who would pass the accredited investor test if they were given the chance. Maybe they just don't have the capital, but they spend a lot of time on you know, finances and economics and things like that for their own interest, for their own well-being, because they have to now. 
So when, when I think about consumer protection regulation in crypto, I, I personally would like to see a few things. One, I'd like to see a distinction between Bitcoin and the other tokens because of this linkage to the physical world and, and energy um, use that we talked about before. That's number one. The, the other one for me, Mike, is we need to have uh, rules around what exchanges have to share with their users. There's been a movement in, in Bitcoin and crypto more broadly even in the last week or so as a result largely of the FTX blow up. But this has been you know, sort of in the ether for a while. This idea that reserves should prove what they have available to them at any given time. Show me what's in your wallet addresses. Let's see everything, regardless of the token name that you have under your control. And that way we can at least verify that your assets are secure. Now, this doesn't finish the whole, this doesn't go the whole way, right? There's still there's still a few things we'd like to see. One is proof of liabilities. This is a little more difficult, but you know, we gotta take baby steps. And I think for governments to enforce something like that would be pretty easy. Exchanges should do that. It, it encourages consumers to use their platform. It's good for both parties in terms of the exchanges and the users. And then governments can say, look, we're doing something. The whole community agrees on this. And then once you make that first step, you start getting into, okay, what should be allowed to trade? What shouldn't be allowed to trade? Is this a security? Is this a, you know, quote unquote, uh, equity plan and not a, an exchange token, for example? There's many different avenues through which government could regulate this space. Let's start small, easy, and on, so on something everyone can agree upon and go from there. You know, it's interesting. Uh, also, one of the clouds, of course, is that um, Sam Bankman-Fried was uh, very skilled at going into government. I mean, he gave $39.8 million in this Democratic or this midterm cycle to the Democratic Party, but obviously lobbying really to the advantage, looking for rule changes that would advantage FTX. You know, I mean, we've got those YouTube pictures of him boldface lying to Congress, but, you know, and pushing <laughs> that agenda. But obviously, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, and I think the third in command there gave money to the Republican Party. You know, uh, I think it was not near, not in that kind of, about 15 million, though. I mean, to me, that's still real money. I'm just joking. 15 million, 40, 40, you know, but what I'm saying is the interlock between them and, and politicians is just interesting. Should those uh, major parties, Democrats, Republicans give that money back because it was clearly fraudulent, you know, clearly coming out of clients uh, accounts. So, yeah, well, you know, yes, I am suspicious of government's ability to do this, but I think your advice is excellent. Don't try and, you know, create the whole universe there. Take steps that everyone agrees on. Here's some things. And I think that would be at least a very big uh, move in the right direction. I, I think you're right. It's interesting you mentioned the election donations. You know, one of the things that comes up in the Bitcoin space fairly often is this institutional adoption narrative. Will companies hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet instead of dollars? You know, some, some split of the pie. It doesn't have to be 100% mm -hmm. Bitcoin, though that is the pipe dream of Bitcoiners, I will admit. Uh, you know, the, the question is, when it, when it comes to diligence, Mike, the, the American political giants, the, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, they have a lot of rules about campaign donations. And they have a lot of rules about diligence when it comes to fiduciary responsibilities for the companies that trade publicly in their capital markets. What I see in both parties, as you mentioned, both recipients of fairly large sums of money. You know, I know we talk about, hey, what's 15 million between friends, but pretty soon you're talking about real money, okay? And so where, where was the diligence from either party when you get a sum of 40 million from a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried, who, as far as anyone can tell, didn't have any real story about where the initial bootstrapping came from for the exchange, um, has, you know, a family with yeah, some kind of ties to Gary Gensler. Gensler, are they dubious? Are they not dubious? I don't know. I, I didn't bring my tinfoil hat uh, today, but you know, these are, these are things people can look into on their own. 
the question the question remains again the rules seem to be for the or for me i should say and not for the the diligence has to be done before i can invest but with open arms mike um the same folks who are you know so keen on telling me that i need protection are taking fraudulent dollars and uh, i think we should all be concerned about that regardless of your political stripes well, you guys on Canadian Bitcoiners uh, have no shortage of things to be chatting about. I mean, this is a pivotal thing, but I just mean there's so many other aspects. I'm proud to say that after the Super Bowl, the Goofy Award, that, you know, the very next time was these celebrities recommending, you know, Matt Damon saying only the brave or something, you know, and, <laughs> and as we said, Tom Brady, but, uh, you know, and so Larry David had an ad for FTX, you know, the guy who did Larry David show, what a shock, but also Seinfeld, uh, you know, out there. I mean, that, that to me was a monster problem. You know, that's not Kendall Jenner saying buy my lipstick, buy my, uh, you know, nail polish kind of thing. It was outrageous. And it has really blown up in a lot of people's faces. You look through this whole thing, so many mistakes made, so many cons uh, perpetrated, and it isn't good enough to say, well, if it's it's okay for Naomi Osaki, it's good enough for me. You know, <laughs> there's got to be some lessons here somewhere. It's it's interesting, right? That the outsourcing of diligence by a number of parties is a cancer in the financial space at the moment. So let, let's talk about it. You mentioned a few names there. Let's, let's go down the list here and think about who has outsourced diligence and what it means for the average person. I look at the the groups affiliated with Damon, Larry David, uh, you mentioned Brady, Curry, O'Neill, you know, any number of people who had FTX advertising partnerships, um, you know, promoted FTX on different platforms. I even think of Portnoy on Twitter who had the Gemini guys in, you know, not FTX, but all the same. You know, a lot of people, for better or worse, Mike, take trading advice from Dave Portnoy. If the, If you do, fantastic. If you don't, you know, that's probably the better option. But, you know, th th this is all to say that these people were assuming everything was okay. Now, the question is why? And I don't know why, but if it just stopped with celebrities, I would have a laugh about it. You would have a laugh about it. You'd get a goofy award out of it, right? It's good content. But, but the problem is that the outsourcing of diligence didn't stop there. It is all over the place. It's in the Quebec Pension Fund who invested in Celsius. Um, it's in the Ontario Teachers Pension who, by the way, Mike, I know your listeners know this because you mentioned it. They invested in um, in, in uh, FTX not once, but twice. Once in, once in the Series B raise and once in the Series C at a $32 billion valuation. Are you telling me that no one at the Ontario Teachers Pension... Now, I don't care about these people who say, well, it was only $90 million. That's you know a drop in the bucket for a quarter trillion dollar fund. I don't, I don't view it that way. What I view this as is an opportunity for people to look at that pension fund, look at that asset management team and say, if you didn't do the diligence on this, what else did you not do the due diligence on in the last 10 years? I, you know, One of the things we talked about on our show, Mike, as far as diligence and sort of competency in the financial management realm is that since 2008, 2009, when we started to get QE for the first time and started to see financial conditions you know, loosen is too soft a word, but the other, you know, the other words are not coming to me right now. When, when those conditions loosened, we saw a lot of people suddenly become very competent money managers, didn't we? A lot yeah. of people making money, a lot of people doing good work, pensions screaming, uh, endowments screaming, all these things that are generally conservatively positioned. We're making a boatload of cash, Mike. And I would posit to you and your listeners that Maybe they're not all that competent after all. Maybe there's a number of other cards that are about to be turned over where due diligence was outsourced to other firms, other people, 
or in some cases, as we've seen in the Sequoia, um, the Sequoia story about FTX and, and Bankman Freed, the guy was playing a video game and they all loved him. If, if that's the person, if that's the team you're sending into the room to decide whether or not to give $100 million to someone, I promise you it wasn't the first time it happened and it wasn't the only time it happened. So let's see. As the contagion continues to spread and conditions continue to tighten, there may be other cards to turn over. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. Well, I think that is a brilliant point, by the way, and I'm really glad you brought it up. I mean, that should not be overlooked because you had people like from the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund coming out when they made the second, as you say, installment with a valuation of $32 billion, literally saying, I can't think of anything safer in this space. <laughs> you had people like Kevin O'Leary, who's got a huge audience you know, in this broad spe- uh, uh, area, saying, you know, he was a paid spokesman, for God's sakes, didn't quite start his uh, his uh, recommendations. I'm a paid spokesman. So but it was outrageous. But your point is a key point that where was the due diligence? Where else are they doing this? You know, the list is a long one. And as I say, Joey, you've got a lot to talk about on Canadian Bitcoiners. People can find it on any of the podcasts, the regular stuff, you know, you know, Apple, Spotify, the whole list. And, uh, you know, fascinating stuff. You've done a terrific job and we so much appreciate you finding time. Uh, thanks, Mike. I appreciate you inviting me to the show. And I'll just mention for your listeners, you can see Mike Campbell on the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast. A few weeks ago, he made an appearance. It was outstanding. Very well received by our guests. So thanks again, Mike. I appreciate you uh, bringing me on today. Thanks, Joey. Time now for the quote of the week. Well, one of the most interesting aspects of the current energy crisis is the reluctance of virtually every member of the no fossil fuel crowd, whether it's politicians, special interest groups, uh, members of the media, and supporters in the public, to admit there's anything wrong with their agenda. Anything they'd change. I mean, you know, their unwillingness to admit that fossil fuels will be needed in the transition to renewables, as well as massive increases in mining and resource development. I, I go on about that because I'm flabbergasted by it. I mean, no lessons learned? Really? And that brings me to the quote of the week from Steve Patterson, author of Square One, The Foundation of Knowledge. He's also host of Patterson in Pursuit. He states in quotes, all fields of thought are under constant threat of being captured by superficial consensus by those who are seeking to be part of an authoritative group. These people tend to have superior social and manipulative skills, are better at communicating with the general public, and are willing to attack any critics as if their lives depended on it. For understandable reasons, though, since the benefits of social prestige are indeed on the line when sacred assumptions are being challenged. He goes on to say in quotes, the longer the orthodoxy exists, the higher the cost of revision, potentially costing an entire class their relative social position. If, for example, the science of global warming is revealed to be corrupt, the social hierarchy will be upended and the status of many intellectuals will be permanently damaged, end of quote. I mean, it's a fascinating phenomena here that we're living through when there seems to be so few lessons learned from the actual practical reality of the implementation of policies. And of course, I think we're all going to suffer for that. I'm so pleased to have Frank Justra join me. I mean, I've known Frank for a lot of years, and it's been fascinating to see him carve out a brilliant career in the mining industry, but other things. Uh, you know, he's the winner of the Order of Canada. He's the head of the Justra Foundation. Uh, as I say, if I went through his entire resume, I'd have to say, thanks for the interview, Frank, and go. 
but, uh, you know, uh, Frank, I got to just say, I mean, uh, big respect, uh, what you've been able to do and what you've done for the community too. So I'll leave it at that, but it's, it's been fascinating to watch and, and, a, and a pleasure to watch. Thank you. But lately your interests have been, uh, you know, one that certainly dovetails with what's important to uh, so many people, uh, Canadians, impacting so many Canadians. And you sort of, I'm going to simplify it and say, man, look at all this paper money that's getting created everywhere you look at every turn. And you've shown, you know, you've written about this. You've had articles published about this. Give us a little bit about that backdrop. Yeah. So as you might remember, I've been writing about this topic for 20 years, actually over 20 years now started writing about this in 2001, about the change that I was seeing at the time, the change in attitude by uh, through fiscal policy, through monetary policy, and then comparing those changes, that pattern to history and, and seeing a very troubling pattern. And, uh, and I've been writing about it ever since. I wrote about it through the 2008 crisis and, and beyond. And what, what has happened is very... Uh, it's, it's not unusual when you look at it through a historical perspective that we're doing, we're making the exact same mistakes that every other great power has done throughout history. And then and the rise and fall of great powers, the rise and fall of currencies, the rise and fall of uh, powerful economies, they all make the same mistakes. And so what are those mistakes? The mistakes were obviously... Uh, fiscal irresponsibility, followed by monetary irresponsibility, and then followed by speculation and excess debt. All those things kind of follow each other, and then you get a reset. Something happens, and you have to reset the entire system. And this is where I think we're at today. We're at a very pivotal moment in time where I see an imminent reset of the entire global monetary system. Because it's unsustainable. The debt is unsustainable. The money printing is unsustainable. The speculation is unsustainable. And it all has to come to an end. It has to resolve itself. And so it's a very dangerous and fragile time. It's global. It's not just one country. It's, it's, it seems to be endemic throughout the Western world, at least, you know, the, the Western powers. Um, and there's a shift coming yeah, there's that old line by Herb Stein that says, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And that's what you're describing. Well, yeah, and it yeah. seems like it just keeps escalating. Yeah, you know what I mean? As Hemingway said, bankruptcy happens gradually and then suddenly. And I think we're at that moment in time where some pivotal event will take place that will trigger something catastrophic. And, you know, if you think back to 2008... We thought we understood the system. Everybody thought they understood the system until we didn't. And the problem with black swan events is you don't see them coming until the black feathers start flying. And that's really where I think we're at. You know, we're in a very fragile geopolitical setting. We're in a very fragile global financial uh, setting. And something has to give. Something's going to break. It's unsustainable. So I think that, you know, we have to be prepared for that. Well, and uh, we already had the example of the UK pension system in September. You know, uh, we've got, I mean, the ongoing drama in Japan where they're just trying desperately to keep the interest rates down by buying and that bond market seems broken to me. Uh, the amount of losses in the bond market, as you're alluding to, are just f uh, flabbergasting. And I, I know in uh, 
you know, uh, one of the recent articles you wrote talking about why doesn't the central bank own some gold? Well, we've seen that break there. I mean, I, I think about the response there that you alluded to. The you know, David Dodge says, "Oh, we can just own euro bonds." Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know, that was about. Uh, I have to say something because they sold. Like, we're talking about the Bank of Canada here specifically, which is practically the only central bank in the world that doesn't own gold. And they sold their gold position at rock bottom prices in the early 2000s. And as you said, David Dodge's excuse was, well, you know, there's a cost of holding gold. We can invest in, uh, in bonds and at least get a return. Uh, and gold does nothing. It's a sort of an ancient relic. And he couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, gold has gone up sixfold since they sold their gold position. Bond prices have returned very little over the last 20 years. So he couldn't have been more wrong. And here we are as a... Uh, a, a, a very advanced economy, and we have zero gold holdings in our central bank. Uh, and I think that that is a very dangerous position. Um, and that's just one of the many mistakes that have been made by central bankers over the years. Well, no, but it's a great point. I mean, their track record is very, uh, you know, like I'd be broke if I was them. I mean, I, you know, because it, it, there are serious mistakes. I mean, I can't believe they didn't watch what the their monetary policy didn't observe the fiscal policy yeah. you know that was going on during the pandemic and, and, so you, know, and, you, like, and you mentioned japan japan is out of control i mean they're buying every the central bank is buying every asset class except sushi <laughs> and and you know it's it's crazy i mean it, and it has to they, it's un, what they're doing is unsustainable and at some point it will give and well, and that's the frightening part. I fr I'm I'm worried for individuals, you know, uh, worried for the system, as you say. And that seems to be, you know, are we waiting for a break in the system? But as I say, we and it's not something that uh, we started on this show. We talked that it would always start in emerging markets, which obviously it has, you know. But no, people should understand we're into Europe now. We're into Japan now. You know, the sixth largest uh, UK is, I think, the sixth to eighth largest, depending how you're measuring economy yeah. in the world. Japan, third, third, uh, third or fourth. Wow. Uh, and that's what worries me. It worries me for individuals in that way. Um, let me come back to, you know, and again, uh, the kinds of things that you would like them to be looking at, too, because it also applies to us as individuals. But why should they own gold? Why should the central bank have a piece of gold? Because it's the one of the only assets that's well, it's the only monetary asset that can't be printed. It's as simple as that. Yep. The world is hooked on QE. You know, printing money is the solution and has been the solution to everything. Uh, it's the automatic reflex of every crisis now. And you saw it recently. Well, you saw it through the pandemic. You saw it through the UK bond crisis, the pension uh, fund crisis. Anytime there's a crisis, the automatic reflex is QE. So print, print more money. We well, can't print gold. That's number one. Number two, if you're not following this trend, this is about probably the most important trend to follow right now. Physical gold for the last 12 years has been moving from west to east in huge quantities. And now it's accelerating. Every central bank in the world that's not a western central bank is buying gold and the physical stuff is moving east. Since 1995, 47,000 tons has physically moved from western vaults to eastern vaults. And now that purchasing of gold is accelerating. Something is afoot. And what my guess is, is that the world is preparing for a global monetary system reset. 
which will have to have some hard asset backing. And the conversations that are now taking place are in the open. So you're, now you have the BRICS countries talking openly about creating an SDR type currency basket structure that doesn't involve Western currencies um, for settlement purposes. You've got you know Russia and China all making noises about the same thing. And now you're seeing the global South joining those conversations. And I could give you chapter and verse of all the individual conversations that are taking place, whether it's the golden ruble or whether it's the Saudis now talking about selling oil outside the petrodollar system, which created a floor for the dollar, for the US dollar, and allowed it to remain the supreme currency. So I think that a change is imminent. And when I say imminent, it could be, I don't know, months or years, but we're about to see a change. And that will challenge the supremacy of fiat currencies, especially the U.S. dollar. And I think that that when that happens, I think, well, I think, first of all, that the U.S. will not like it. And I think it will fight it using whatever means possible. But I think it's very hard to fight it when 80 percent of the world's population wants to change. They want to see uh -huh. this change. And if you think throughout history, every paper currency that was ever created was backed by gold initially. Obviously, countries lose their discipline over time, then they take they come off the gold backing as the U.S. did in 1971. But they have to, for the for the sake of credibility for that new currency, whatever it looks like, it could be a basket of currencies, it could be a single currency, has to have gold backing because you can't print the stuff, and it's the only and it's the only non-paper asset that every central bank, except for Canada, in the world owns. So it's to me, it's 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 the natural go-to asset to create a new currency. It seems to be part of that bigger trend that we've been talking about in money talks. I, I say to people, close your eyes. I'll give you a pile of paper, paper dollars, or I'll give you gold, oil, wheat mm -hmm. kind of thing. Now, which do you want in the next five years? But your point's an important one for people to grasp is you're watching central banks, and we certainly know China's been doing this, uh, you know, make that, that shift. You know, I, I encourage individuals to make that shift, too, yeah. but has made that shift. And yet, as you say, the Western governments seem so reluctant. In fact, they're piling on. I mean, when, you know, the, the, because I think the system is already broken, you've got the pension system in the UK. They jump in with 60 to 65 billion pounds in that day. Yeah. You know, as you said, what's the solution? Oh, quickly print, create more money and, and try and paper it over. It's the only thing they know because uh, up until now it's worked. They're doubling down because it's the only solution that they have that's not a painful solution. So you can solve a lot of the world's problems with very painful solutions, but no politician or policymaker wants to, can get elected or appointed if they subject their population to painful solutions. And what are painful solutions? Austerity, bankruptcy, all these things yeah. just are not on the table. What can they do? Inflate the problems away. And that's what every country has ever done throughout history. When they run into these kind of problems, they inflate the problem away by debasing their currencies. And this is what we're faced with. And, and it will continue until something breaks because they don't know what else to do. They're in an inescapable trap. I've been saying this since 2008. There is no way out the, the math simply doesn't work. And now the arithmetic is finally catching up with the views that have taken place. This time it's different. We're exceptional. It can never happen here. All of these mantras that the West has relied on are coming home to roost now. 
and it, something has to break before they do some before they realize that they have a real problem in their hands because it's easy to kick the can down the road and that's exactly where we're at well, and so many things within that statement, but one is we're already seeing, I always say, who likes inflation? Government likes inflation. They pay back with dramatically reduced dollars, you know, that, that, that they can't pay any other way. But the other one we're seeing now, even in revenues at times, you know, Ontario just uh, presented a budget that was about $6 billion better. Why? Because inflation had pushed people's wages up, or especially when it comes to, uh, you know, sales taxes revenue goes through the roof. Gasoline tax revenue has gone through the roof. But uh, I just want people to note that this is already happening, yeah. you know, that they've already chosen how to get out of this or, you know, and again, they don't admit it, but I mean, they're not paying anything back. So they're going to pay it and, you know, really dramatically reduce buying power. Dollars. You know, when I, when I was a kid, I lived in Argentina. Um, I, I, I didn't come to Canada till I was nine. And if you know anything about history, um, you'll appreciate this. So my father invested in some businesses in Argentina. Um, and then he just he saw the writing on the wall what was taking place in Argentina during the 60s. And he decided to move his family out. He saw that things were going sideways. We left, we came to Canada. He tried to get out of his uh, business partnerships, got into a bit of a few lawsuits. By the time his money, by the time he resolved the lawsuits and he got his money, hyperinflation had set in. And every penny he got back, or I should say every peso he got back, was worthless. Absolutely worthless, because hyperinflation had set in. And what we don't understand in this country is we believe it can never happen here. When it happens, it happens when you do certain things, when you behave in a certain way, hyperinflation eventually sets in. And I think that's where we're heading. Either hyperinflation or economic collapse or some combination of the both. Or both. And what I, what I think the problem is that we're living in truly unprecedented times. The, this situation is global. We have never seen it quite like this any time in history. So it's very difficult to predict an absolute outcome. All you can look at is a range of probabilities, and I can give you the range of probabilities. It's either going to be hyperinflation or a complete economic collapse or both. Um, and there's no way to reverse this trend, again, unless people are willing to take on a lot of pain, and politicians certainly don't have the backbone to create that, that environment. So for the individual, I look at this and, and uh, I mean, everyone's got different circumstances, of course, et cetera, but this is the backdrop of which they're trying to survive. You know, I mean, when they print money like this, I look at the UK as a great example of what you've just said about politicians not willing for the pain. So they institute climate change policies that said no fossil fuels. That was unrealistic in the time frame that they had set out. Okay, so now we're getting some of the implications in addition to exacerbated by Russian sanctions. And what's their response, though? Oh, we'll give you $700 billion in subsidies in Europe, which is inflationary, which is de devaluing the currency because it's just printed out. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but printed out of thin air is yeah. still the concept. Yeah, no, and, and that's what I believe, that every crisis, whether the crisis was a pandemic or the energy crisis or the UK pension fund crisis, will be met with QE. And whatever crisis hits America next will be met with QE. And that's why I've been saying for a while that this, you know, these rate hikes that are taking place are, A, going to break something if they continue them because um, the world is so fragile and so indebted. Um, and some crises will 
take place, and then they'll reverse course, as they've always done, rates will go back to zero, and then they'll start printing again, because that's the only thing they know how to do. <laughs> okay, let's talk just for a second. Two things I want to get to, um, one, you know, both in your background, but the first is, what are the implications for the mining industry? You know, I mean... Well, I, I think uh, we're headed towards a, a hard asset environment. I think that the inflation that you and I talked about nine years ago, when, when you interviewed me on stage, and I said yeah. then, I said that all of this money printing will eventually come home to roost. And uh, what we saw in the early stages of that money printing was asset inflation. It's now converting into CPI inflation. And we're heading, now you're seeing it in the commodity prices. And I think especially now with the geopolitical state of the world, the way it's in, you know, China versus, you know, the U.S., you know, Russia versus the West, all of these things are going to exasperate inflation in the commodities and commodities we're we're going to go through a commodity shock we have very short in supply whether it's food or metals or oil they're controlled by certain countries usually it's the developing countries and the developed countries are the ones that consume all the stuff so i think that inflation is here to stay in the commodities so i think for the miners i think they're going to it, over the next few years you see an incredible run with with the mining sector uh because simply there has been very little capital investment in, in both mining and oil over the last couple of decades. And I think that, that those shortages are going to start to show up and the supply chains are being disrupted. So I think that it's a, it's a very strong case for the miners. I don't know if you read that Credit Suisse report which talked about the Bretton Woods 3 concept, which yes. basically suggested that the world's heading towards a currency system that's backed by commodities because that's what really that's what's going to come now I don't, I don't totally agree with that because i think to back currencies with a basket of commodities is very complex you have all sorts of issues with volatility and storage and and, and the cost of shipping and all it's it, and it's it's i think it's much easier to back with gold which every central bank of the world owns as opposed to commodities but i think that the that the idea was right that we're heading towards a hard asset commodity environment so i think I would be long the miners, you know, I don't know if you watch some of these international miners like Rio Tinto and BHP and Valley, the dividend payouts are fantastic. And, you know, I don't have any, I personally don't have any ownership in American equities, but I do invest in really solid international companies with high dividend yields. And the miners are the best that I see the best asset class for the moment. Uh, you know, important, uh, 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 as I say, I don't want to uh, push you into a corner, but what you're doing is fascinating to people. You know, you recognize the problem. You've been on top of the problem for 20 years. You've been writing about it, you know, articles recently, et cetera. And uh, see, that's my concern. What you're, what you're expressing is my worry for people, they're going to be roadkill. Yeah. You know, they already are. I mean, from this system, I mean, people renewing their mortgages right now. There's some people who cannot afford that massive increase. In oh, yeah. I, I don't know if you saw, I saw a recent report that uh, the average American right now is paying 50% of their income just to service their mortgages. I mean, that's unheard of. Credit card debt has gone through the roof. It's at record highs. And again, unsustainable. Something's going to break. 
And uh, as I say, uh, that's why people, I love the, the articles you've been writing, but it's because people have to be aware that this is a challenge. They can't mirror the central bank. Yeah. And have, you know, gold has a place in portfolios. Uh, other, as you say, uh, quality miners, uh, you know, I mean, we know we need a lot more copper. We know we need a lot more lithium. Uh, you know, that list is a N- long Nickel, one. cobalt, uh, copper, uh, silver, um, all metals that are needed for this transformation to, you know, to electrify the world. And they're in short supply. There's not how many countries in the world are major nickel producers? Indonesia, the uh, DRC, Russia, you know, it's, they're not in easy places. And so I think that, you know, that, you know, in copper, there's been underinvestment in copper mines over the years. It, as you know, from discovery to production, it takes almost 20 years to put a mine into production. You know, and we haven't invested, the world hasn't invested enough in these mines over the last 20 years. There's a lot of catching up to do here. So, I, yeah, I would look at the miners. I, uh, in all the base metals and in the strategic metals, I would look at energy companies, um, anything that the world needs um, in terms of commodities, commodities is, the pla- is the place to be. Um, but again, as I said earlier, it's, it's, we're living in unprecedented times. Um, your general investment philosophy should be, and this is really important, defensive. It's about protecting the wealth you already have as opposed to trying to make money. And I want to repeat that. Protect the wealth that you have as opposed to trying to make money. This is all about a defensive strategy at the time because I'm afraid we're going through a period of time where all asset classes are going to be under pressure, some more than others. So the trick is to be in those asset classes that will be under less pressure than others. Okay. So for instance, and I love this one, cryptocurrencies, an absolute no-no. I think they are, they were always to me a gambling asset that were then fueled by debt. So you, uh, you've levered a gambling asset with debt, making it very toxic um, and it's like, I, I use the analogy of, it's like, it's like stuffing the Hindenburg into the Titanic when you lever crypto assets. So I've, I'm like, I've never touched this stuff. I am a firm believer that this is a, these are assets that are, that play off the greater fool theory. They're not real assets. You have to invest in real assets. So my general principle is invest in anything that can't be printed. If you can't, well, I'll- if you can't print it. It's a probably a good idea to own it. So currencies, bonds, you know, certain stocks that <laughs> you can print. Um, you know, stay away from things that can be printed. Hard assets, anything that's tangible and it's real, and that there's a, a growing demand for it globally, and that you can then look at whether the geopolitics affects the supply of those things. Those are the things you should look at. Well, that, that is wonderful advice, by the way, and I love and I want to re-emphasize what you just said. This is an era to be defensive. Yes. You know, and I, I just wish that would, uh, you know, I wish for everybody's well-being that people are hearing that message. And the great thing about a podcast, they can re-listen to that again and again, because I think that's the key component. People haven't made the adjustment from what was happening, say, 2020 
2021 into 2000. They haven't made that mental adjustment. Yeah. I'm still getting asked, is, is that down low enough yet? And I say, no, I don't want my Peloton, <laughs> you know, or Arc Innovation. And I'm not trying to jump all over yeah. that, but those are the opposite of what you've just uh, alluded to. And people have to have to get if, that. You know, you and I started in this business in the late, in the seventies. Okay. So we've seen a few markets and what I, there's a Kathy Wood arc and arc in every cycle, in every bubble environment, there's a Kathy Wood. And, you know, you can see the writing on the wall with people like that, that they're destined when the, the type of things that they say that this time is different, that, you know, we're, we're in a permanent plateau of wealth by investing in this asset class. You know that that, you know, that the writing's on the wall for, for that bubble to burst. And, you know, Kathy Wood was a perfect example. We saw it through the dot-com era. Same type of language, same, you know, these financial gurus come. Now you've seen it in crypto. You saw it with the Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, I can't believe that the intelligent investors like Ontario Teachers, Sequoia, Tamasek, all these really the smartest guys in the room would make such a foolish mistake to invest billions of dollars into an asset class that is completely unregulated. And you know what, where they have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, how dumb can people be? I just don't get it. But it's the it's a symptom of a bubble environment. You see it, you know, it, it happens over and over again every couple of decades. Absolutely. Hey, look, Frank, I kept you a little longer, but I got to tell you, you know how much you do know how much I appreciate you finding time for Money Talks and Money Talks audience. No, no problem. Uh, great stuff as usual. Insights so valuable for people to hear. Thank you. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. As I mentioned in the quote of the week, one of the most interesting aspects of the energy crisis is it's not made one iota of difference to the climate crusaders. The prospect of starvation in the developing world or the significant loss of manufacturing jobs in Germany and other EU countries is a huge, you know, plus a huge escalation in government debt. What, there's $700 billion worth of energy bailouts and subsidies in the EU alone and the worst is yet to come in the energy field. Yet climate activists are still throwing gravy, tomato soup, mashed potatoes at multi-million dollar paintings. They're gluing themselves to the floor of things like the Porsche Pavilion in Germany or blocking traffic. For them, nothing has changed. And the fallout from ill-conceived, ill-thought-out fossil fuels agenda, they actually consider it positive. But not surprising though, climate activists are still fighting pipelines, mining projects, for the very minerals that are going to be needed to build the grid and are essential for electric vehicles. And that brings me to the shocking stat of the week. You know, the motto of Earth Justice is because the Earth needs a good lawyer. And shockingly, it has 180 full-time lawyers on staff. I mean, that's shocking enough, but what's important to note, and this is the stat of the week, is that they claim to be involved in 650 ongoing active legal proceedings against various projects. I mean, we're talking things like lithium and copper mining, other resources that are going to be needed to facilitate the transition. And by the way, if you don't get that kind of stuff in North America, well, that's to the benefit of China because they got a near monopoly on refining of rare earth minerals, for example, or they produce over half of the world's supply. You know, lately, governments in Canada and the U.S. have acknowledged the need to bring more production of the minerals needed for the renewable grid and EVs to North America. But with groups like EcoJustice, 
fighting them every step of the way, well, that's a long way from happening and becoming a reality. Hey, stay with us. I still got a great goofy award for you. I've got Aussie Jurek. And just a reminder, we've got the World Outlook Conference. It's coming up February 3rd and 4th in Vancouver at the Western Bay Shore, back live in person. Man, that's been a while, but there's so much to talk about, as we say, but a great a group of people coming in. Kevin Muir, the macro tourist, will be with us for the first time. Greg Weldon will join us. Martin Armstrong will join us. As I say, the list is a long one. You can go on to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Check it out. I hope to see you then. In the meantime, we got more coming your way, so stay with us. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now. If you don't follow him, you should. He's at ozbuzz.ca because he has a free weekly newsletter. All you have to do is just put your name in, you know, and they send it out to you. Lots of great stuff on that. Ozzy, you know, one of the themes I'm looking forward uh, and we've been experiencing, I'm proud to say we identified it. There's more to come as that's liquidity. You know, uh, people found out in UK pension fund when you go no bid, that's no fun. You know, they're having that challenge in Japan. But what happened, of course, is that when interest rates at these really historic lows, people started to look elsewhere, you know, to get a little bit better. I know Victor Adair was very concerned about that. Well, I wanted to talk and just get a take from you. You know, mortgage funds, by nature, they're not that liquid. I mean, I can't just sell my house as easily as I can sell stocks. So tell me a little bit about, give me some of your take on that. Well, it's, it's like you say, a mortgage investment corporation or mortgage funds, uh, invest in real estate uh, by lending uh, money to, to people that, uh, that, that make an investment. And so the money that comes, I have seen them again this last a couple of years. I've never seen so much cash with individuals and they were all crying. They only got 1% in the bank. So mortgage funds were always very attractive and probably they still are. But we now have, for instance, one in Ontario, Rompspen Investment Corporation, has halted redemptions on its largest fund because a number of borrowers stopped making payments to them. And so maybe if you have money in a fund that you might need, uh, you might ask the, uh, the owners and operators of the fund to see how strong their, their payment uh, repayment is, because uh, this particular fund said to his investors that loan payoff activity remains suppressed and therefore we are halting all redemptions. Well, as I say, changing marketplace, uh, demands but as you say as an individual that's our message here check what uh, what it's all about so uh, i mean just give me one more summation ozzy what would i ask the person who's selling the fund uh, as my main question in this regard well i have a hundred thousand dollars with you if i wanted it today can i get it you know and then you should get the answer he says well no we are we are right now we are we are hot we are we're having a problem with getting payment just ask him how solvent are we Okay, I want to jump around a little bit today, Ozzy, because I want to come to something else. But I thought it was kind of good news for people who want to do a little bit of research. You can use the site realtor.ca. But I just read, didn't I, that the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board finally played catch up with the rest of the country. (laughs) Yeah, they're now uh, the final board in British Columbia to make historical home prices available. So if you go to realtor.ca as of November 7, consumers can can access their sold data on realtor.ca for active listings in the region. So the neat thing there is that's how realtors always evaluate their properties. Uh, that when they give you a price, they look at what recently sold that was similar to your house. Well, I was talking to Michael Treitz, who's the managing broker of Royal Abate, and he said, you know, this is really good, but 
we do not show the last 12 months. So he says it's not really that useful if you're trying to find out what your property is worth now to find out what it was worth a year ago or two years ago. But anyways, it's a step forward. What, what about other parts of the country, though? I mean, if I'm just wanting to research, <coughs> excuse me, home price, the price of the home in, in any other location, like, uh, you know, proud to have people from Kamloops listening today. So uh, if I wanted to get a home there, can I get a much fuller? Can I get last year's also? But that's where I could go, go to realtor.ca and get that sort of price history of sales? Yes, it's a Canadian Real Estate Association website that features all of the different boards. And yes, you can get the historical home price. I mean, boards have been fighting this for years. Um, and, and there's some reason. You, you still, what if the owners don't want it? And owners can certainly opt out. But for you to do some evaluation in a marketplace, to look at past sales, even if they're a year old, you get a good idea of what that marketplace is like on sales, not on listings. Okay, I got to throw a little curveball at you because people ask me, well, what would Aussie do? We should have a little segment for what would Aussie do? W-W-O-D. Well, <laughs> what would Aussie do? We want to talk about being in the market today. And, and just, I mean, look, I'm not holding you to it, but it's sort of the things, your, your long experience. Let's talk about I want to make an offer in this market. And I'm looking, you know, obviously I'm looking for deals. Uh, give me an example. Well, the thing is that for some reason, we think a good market is when five buyers wrestle each other in the living room of the seller to the floor, shouting wildly with better offers. And then one emerges victoriously paying 100,000 more than the guy even wanted. And we call that a good market. I don't call that a good market. A good market is one that we have now where the vendor is reasonable, the realtor has time. And then it's a matter of, in my experience, Mike, all good deals and the best deals are negotiated. So you've got to make an offer and you've got to ask for things. And right now the owners are looking for offers, all of the owners, including developers and pre-sales. So ask for everything to be included. I mean, of course, be reasonable. But if the person says, I'm going to move to Ontario to meet my daughter, well, you won't need his furniture. You won't need the garden shed. Ask for everything, right? Mm-hmm. Get Maybe ask him also, if you're worried about your mortgage payment, and right now, 6% seems like a lot. Ask the owner to buy down the mortgage rate, maybe to 4.5%. And that might cost him, depending on the mortgage amount, might cost him 50000 But he might have reduced the price by 50000 anyways. And if you now have a mortgage for uh, three or four years at uh, at 4.5%, and that makes you comfortable, then that is something that you want to do. Find the longer amortization periods, maybe the 30 or 40 years. Ask him outright to carry a second mortgage at no interest, maybe for also for three years. And then, then again, he can sit down with a pen with his realtor and see whether that's worth his while. But for you, if it's a payment uh, that you're worried about, you know, fix it that way. And then finally, if you buy an investment property and the owner makes, a, say, a million dollars profit, ask him to carry a mortgage. And he says, well, I don't want to do that. But he said, do you realize, sir, if you sell this now, you have to declare your million dollar capital gain this year. If you give me a mortgage for five years, you can pay your capital gain at 200,000 per year and makes it much more tax effective. And then finally, make the offers, make them subject to inspection, subject to financing. And then if you don't get what you want, look at your wife or your wife, if you're you're the the boss, look at your husband saying, so what, next. There's always a good deal in this market, you should negotiate it. 
Okay, so you just, that's great. And you gave us a lot of information. I want to back up on a couple of things here uh, and just start with, uh, give me uh, the kinds of things you could ask to be included. You mentioned sort of, it could be furniture as an example. Give me a couple of others. Well, if it's just logical, anything that's around the house, the riding lawnmower, the, the, the garden sheds, uh, you know, certainly you want a washing machine dryer, all of the appliances, which the owner is likely going to leave anyways. I mean, if he moves next door, it's not as likely. But if he's going to move anywhere soon, he's really not that much in love with his uh, with his furniture. Ask for it all. I bought a house in Surrey that had probably $25,000 worth of furnishings in it. The owner just left, left everything there. But I had to ask for it, right? You mm -hmm. asked for it. I was just thinking of a time when my wife was, uh, uh, was selling a property and she was going to include me actually as part of the purchase, but we'll leave that. Uh, let me come back to this other thing you said, because it's interesting and I think many people won't have heard it. But again, well, let's start with the concept. We have a slow, excuse me, a slower market. People want to make deals. People want to buy, people want to sell. So let's talk about that seller. As you say, maybe they're prepared to discount it by 50,000, depending on the size, of course. And yet another way of saying is don't discount the price give me a better mortgage rate like you help me with one and a half percent worth of that six percent mortgage uh you know they'll do the numbers and maybe that works out so i think that's a great example of doing a negotiation but the other one i'm not so sure people are familiar with is you said if the owner seller the seller is carries the mortgage the implications for capital gains yeah, well, of course, it's an investment-type property. If it's if it's a yes. single-family home, it, it doesn't have to declare any capital gain. But let's say you had a, a, a $5 million purchase and the owner has a million-dollar profit in it, he has to declare that this year. But if he carries a mortgage over five over the term of the mortgage, because for three years he can declare a third every year and he can up to five years carry the mortgage and really spread out the capital gain. And that's good management. In fact, I have a personal uh, situation in, in one of our students where he was able to get an $8 million mortgage uh, in, in one of our smaller towns that the owner had no intention of carrying at all at first. And then when he realized all the taxes he had to pay, it made sense to him. The big thing is ask for it. Don't be shy. It's the same with the, the pre-sale developers. Some are offering a $50,000 thing, uh, a $50,000 payment. Some are offering to pay the GST or 5% down. This is the time, the kind of market that has shifted to the buyer. So as a buyer, don't be scared. Get a professional realtor that can write the deal. Talk to a Kyle Green. You know, he's been on your show, a great mortgage broker. You need somebody that's innovative and can actually work out the, the reduction in the, in the interest rate and so on. Well, that's great stuff. Great advice. And as I say, it's a different market. We have to behave differently. As you say, uh, you know, it's nice to be in a buyer's market for a change. If you're on that side of the coin, it's been a seller's market for a number of years. Ozzy, you go out and have a terrific weekend after I remind people to go to ozbuzz.ca. ozbuzz.ca. You'll see Ozzy's smiling face. Lots of great information. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Well, and just very quickly, the Ozbuzz. Uh, normally is is a written version it's text but this week i put out a video because after we put out the video last week on, on november 10th we had so many questions i just couldn't deal with it so you not only see my my smiling face frozen it's talking it's a talking head that you see at osbuzz.ca <laughs> that sounded like a threat thanks ozzy have a terrific week I always enjoy going live to the trading desk with Victor Dare after yet another busy week. 
Victor, I thought you would have found Frank Joostra's uh, comments right, <laughs> excuse me, right at the end when he says uh, a couple of things. We're still sort of stuck in that 2008, 2000, you know, 2021, 20, 22 mindset. And I know you've been talking about that, that we still kind of are acting as if uh, this is just a break in that mindset. You know, that's, um, what is it, the consequences are a small world or something like that. I, I've been making notes uh, this week for the, you know, the trading desk notes that I put up on my website. And one of my thoughts was this transition thing. And I've been trying to figure out just exactly what it is. But from my side, we had a period of time from, say, 2008 to 2021, 22, where people got used to a low inflation, low interest rate environment and kind of thought it would go on forever. And we've changed. I think we're now in a higher inflation, higher interest rate environment. So some of the behaviors or some of the things that investors would do in that earlier environment probably aren't going to work as well or not work at all, you know, in the new environment that we're in. And that's kind of what I'm wrestling with when I when I watch how the markets move here as people's behavior changes. Yeah. And again, I have a simple measure for that is how many people have asked me, is it a buy yet? You know, whatever we're talking about. And I, I just thought, well, first of all, that's not a signal of a bottom. You know, you can get bounces, of course, and people short cover and the things rockets up. So volatility is part of it. It's just now that's not usually the signal of the bottom. The signal of the bottom is I'm never buying another stock again as long as I live. You know, that's that, that's the psychology. And, you know, as Frank alluded to, I'm an old guy, you know, and we've seen that. And, and you've been around to see all of those kind of moves. Uh, and hence, that's why you were talking about going back a while. Hey, you don't trust anything parabolic. You know, because all you know is that pretty much guarantees you're getting the bear parabolic on the downside, which, of course, is what we've been seeing, you know, in the markets. Uh, let me come back to the inflation comment you just made. You know, it's interesting that if this was a year ago, we'd still have our central banks aggressively talking inflation's just transitory. You know, and as I said at the time, so was the Roman Empire, but I don't want to stick around for 500 years of high inflation. Yeah, there we get to that thing that I love to talk about, which is time frame. And just let me preface what I'm about to say by saying most of the time when you and I are talking, I'm talking a pretty short time frame. I'm kind of talking my book here as I sit in front of my machines and buy and sell this and that. But a little longer term view in terms of if you cornered me somewhere and said, OK, Victor, what do you really think? I'm going to say, well, I think this 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 tr this transitory from, you know, the low inflation, low interest rate environment to something different is happening and people aren't catching up to that yet. So you talked about how quick things move. We had the CPI number last week and in four days, we had the Dow Jones up 1500 points and, and actually a thousand of that happened in the first 15 minutes. Like people have been, I think, too eager to try to find that buying opportunity that a an easing or pardon me a backing away fed would signal it's like it's like a pavlovian response you know we, we want to buy the dip and there would be nothing that would signify a dip better than the fed you know getting their head screwed on right and stop pushing up interest rates you know, I think one of the reasons is that because we have an industry built on buying. I listened to a couple of the major shows. I don't want to throw somebody under the bus here, so I'm not going to say the names. But major shows 
you know, with huge coverage. And my gosh, that's the only question they ask. Is it a buy yet? You know, and, and it's been from the outset. But your point there is so well taken, though, Victor, that we, we've had this big drop, so let's say, from the highs in January. Well, we recovered about half of it in four trading days. Well, that's not the action of a bull market. That's what happens in bear markets. As, as I said just a moment ago, people covering their shorts, as an example, other bargain hunters. Uh, that's, that's what jumps out at me that you've been posting on your blog is this is the kind of action that takes place really out of, you know, these sharp rallies are not a big surprise in a bear market. You know, and I think we have been in a bear market since the beginning of this year. Now, from 2009 until the beginning of this year, we had an incredible, tremendous, greatest ever bull market in stocks. Okay, so what we've done, you know, in the, since the beginning of this year could be just a correction in a lot of people's minds. I think it is. But I think it's, it's more serious than that. And that's the stock market. Something else here before we run out of time is the U.S. dollar. Now, the U.S. dollar hit a 20-year high. Uh, in September. And we backed off about 7% since then. And part of that correction, I'm going to call it, has been because of this idea that maybe the Fed is going to not be so tough and so on. So the U as well as maybe the US dollar got a bit of ahead of itself. But, um, you know, if you back me into a corner and say, okay, if you're going to buy this or sell that, what's your call on the stock market? What's your call on the currency market? I, I think the stock market will probably go lower, if if not for any other reason, then we probably got a recession looming. There'll be be that'll come into play, and uh, I think the U.S. dollar actually goes higher. And even in a recessionary environment, if the United States is in a recession, you know, God help me, what the rest of the world looks like. Europe, Europe is for sure is going to be in much more of a recession than America. And I think there's a more than a 50-50 probability that we go sometime in next year into a recessionary environment. Well, I, I think that's a great insight. And, uh, you know, time's too short this week. But to say to you that, uh, look, people just have to go to victoradare.ca. You're posting. I love it. You post your charts. You can see it. The old picture says a thousand words. Uh, getting a chance to elaborate and uh, see the kinds of thing that Victor's talking about. So in the meantime, Vic, I hope, well, get those charts up for me. But in the meantime, go to victoradare.ca. Have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, as I chatted earlier with Michael Levy, inflation, our cost of living, got to be the number one issue in the country. Over half of Canadians are saying they're worried about literally making ends meet, and that number is growing. Uh, inflation was fueled, make that guaranteed, by the way, when hundreds of billions of dollars were flushed into the system by the federal government by way of numerous COVID-related programs, along with record low interest rates from the Bank of Canada. All against the backdrop, though, of supply shortages. Come on, you don't need a PhD in economics to understand that a huge amount of new money chasing fewer goods is going to push prices up. And it's all happening with energy prices also elevated thanks to the no fossil fuels agenda exacerbated by Russian sanctions. And no Western country, including Canada, by the way, wants to do the one thing that could alleviate the energy crisis, uh, bring lower prices, hurt the Russian invasion efforts. And that's a concerted effort to increase production. I mean, that refusal in and of itself merits a big fat goofy. But for today's goofy, I want to come back to the massive amount of money pushed into the system by the federal government. 
with the majority going to people who were not hurt financially by the pandemic. And that includes 40,000 grade nine students who received checks. Now, keep in mind, the programs were meant to help workers who had lost their job, seen their hours cut back, or were focused or forced rather to shut their business doors. I mean, due to the decision to lock down the economy. There were concerns expressed immediately by about fraudulent applications, but the government decided that the speed in getting the money into people's hands was a higher priority than concerns over fraud. But it's one thing to say that concerns over fraud are secondary, but it's quite another to tell the civil service, tell the CRA to ignore red flag fraudulent claims, which in early May 220 were already numbering what, something like 200,000 people when it comes to employment insurance claims, tens of thousands more getting Canada emergency benefits. I mean, the CERB program itself was budgeted at $24 billion. You know what? It ended up costing $81.6 billion. And that brings me to the goofy. As Blacklock's reporter notes, suspected fraud was reported by banks within weeks of the program's launch. Barry McKillop, he's the deputy director of the Financial Transactions and Report Analysis Center, testified last December before the Commons Finance Committee that, in quotes, it was really for the most part our large financial institutions that were reporting on a number of Canada emergency response benefits that were coming in with certain clients, and they would see clients receiving benefits under different names and so forth. Probably the most typical you'd see is one person who has a bank account and is receiving multiple CERB checks under different names going into his or her bank account. Then the money would be quickly dispersed either through money transfers to someone else or to send themselves in another, to another institution, or the money would be taken out almost immediately through crash withdrawals at ATMs. Well, the Canada Revenue Agency said it was flooded with tips by informants naming suspected cheaters, but the government wasn't interested. In fact, it instructed the various institutions and CRA not to follow up. And this week, well, we finally got the most recent tally anyways as to how much money we're talking about here. Well, we're talking 5.3 billion with a B, billion dollars. But I suspect that number is going to rise as investigations continue. But it's 5.3 billion and counting. But come on, that's hardly a surprise when the government considered concerns over fraud secondary. Hey, that's all the time we have. I want to remind you, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, and you can get your ticket for the World Outlook Conference February 3rd and 4th. Man, uh, as I say, every year we've been building up to what we're seeing today. We've been chronicling it. I'm proud of the track record uh, that we've had on Money Talks, but I'll tell you there's more. We're not finished the sovereign debt crisis. We're not finished the monetary crisis, as you heard earlier with Frank Justra. We're not uh, finished with the challenges that you face as an individual. So go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, join us, come to the World Outlook Conference February 3rd and 4th. And just a reminder, hey, always post tons of stuff on uh, Money Talks tweets, tons of stuff you're not seeing in the mainstream media that are all part of this picture. Uh, We also have, of course, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. So I urge you to join us, be the most up-to-date person in your whole circle and help everybody else. But in the meantime, look, I do appreciate you listening and I hope you have a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. 
Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.